Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. I'm Babe Shake the Broom, episode 101. Brad, that sounds quite <laughs> nice to me. 101 times uh, Ocean Protect podcast has come out and uh, we get to do it again. So, Brad, what are we talking about today, mate? Well, I reckon, you know, for something, I reckon we need to reinvent ourselves a little bit, Jeremy. We're like Lady Gaga, you know, we're, we're constantly changing our fashion or hairstyles, more or less you're, you're following my lead generally. You have not, um, changed, but- <laughs> you have not changed your hair though. <laughs> You cannot improve on perfection, Jeremy. You know, when you got when you got a light, you got to let it shine. But I thought we'd actually just have a chat between me and you, geeking out on some ocean related science. What do you reckon? Mate, sounds uh, sounds glorious to me. <laughs> and obviously we've been beating this drum for a while in terms of the issue around uh, ocean plastic. But there's actually just been some recent articles and publications that have actually garnered a bit more science around what we've been talking about for a while. So this sort of got my attention. This is a little bit of an old article. This is an article put out by The Guardian, just to give it some context. So it's basically saying, look, plastic waste, this is an article put out in The Guardian, and I'll include a link to all these articles in, and journal articles in the um, in the show notes, but this is a, an article called Plastic Waste Entering the Ocean Expected to Triple in 20 Years. So this is something that you might recall, Jeremy, me and you have been talking about uh, as we go around the countryside talking about this sort of stuff. We say the yeah, ocean plastic is a big problem. Uh, I think roughly they think about a, a garbage truck a minute uh, entering the ocean, but by 2050 or t- thereabouts, we reckon it'll be three garbage trucks full of plastic, and they think there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. And if anything, they the, the, the science is kind of indicating that actually might be, and this sounds scary, this that actually might be conservative. So they, they reckon it might triple within 20 years uh, now. And if anything, particularly microplastic contamination is probably worse than anticipated. Reading through these articles, it, it's always shocking. But this one, hmm. I think it was published 11 months ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, yeah. The, the, the bit about it that, that I want to really talk about here is all the efforts we're doing with recycling and better waste management and return and earns and all the stuff that we're doing around the world by governments and companies, they're only projecting that it's going to reduce the volume by 7%. Yeah. Now, that is a small drop in the ocean, you know, for all the effort, all the money for, for what we're trying to achieve here. To me, that, that shocked me the most. I don't know about you, mate. Mm, but Yeah, totally. You know, yeah, a, look lot, at- a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of focus has been on 
you know, the plastic, where it's coming from. And, and, and look, this is very important, but we're, we're dealing with behavioral change. Mm. And look, look at, you know, our own lives. It's very, it's very hard to make long-term sustained, changeable habits that we all have. That's mm. going to, that's going to take, you know, years and years and years and years. And in the meantime, what this research is showing that a lot of it is coming from rivers all around the world. But what, yeah. what, what, what I'm flabbergasted by is what about going upstream from the river, you know, yeah. which is what we've been talking about. Yeah. And, and like it's sort of the narrative that we've also talked about is to solve a problem and that plastic pollution problem in our oceans is a massive problem. To solve that problem, you have to have a very good understanding of that problem. And I think prior to the last few years, there has been a poor understanding around this. And this is where the science helps. I guess make the solutions more obvious, and and then one of the articles that, uh, and I'll I'll get back to that sort of issue around the, the 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 scary numbers around the amount of plastic entering, but a more recent article, and this was in the uh, in Forbes. This is an article by David Vetter, who's a, a senior contributor for sustainability for Forbes, and his his article is called "These Four Plastic Items Make Up Almost Half of All Ocean Trash." So when we talk about ocean plastic, it seems like a uh, I guess a sort of all-encompassing sort of term, but what the the research, the more recent research is finding, and it's very consistent with what we've been talking about for a long time, is that the the, the common items and the lion's share of the ocean plastic load is from land, and it's essentially single-use plastic items that are conveyed into the ocean via stormwater. And I think this is where the narrative really needs to go. Okay. This is a problem. Uh, but the, the, the cause, the contributing factor of this problem is, is this link between land and sea and our use of single use items in particular and how are they being conveyed into the ocean environment? Cause you might remember, Jeremy, we did a survey, a nationwide survey in Australia uh, about two and a half years ago. And we said to the Australian community, it was a, it was a put out by a, um, independent survey company. So we set the questions and they basically handled uh, the, the survey itself. So they sent it out to a thousand people all across Australia, all demographics, all age groups, all locations and said, okay, where's all this ocean plastic coming from? Long story short, the Australian public didn't know. So we gave them four options. It's a multiple choice question. And we said, is it commercial fishing nets? Is it littering at the beach? Is it stormwater? Is it sewage or, or, or just something else? You know, whatever. And even in the discussions that we've had with stormwater engineers, Jeremy, as I'm sure yeah. you'll recall, most of the stormwater engineers don't even think it's stormwater. I'd say the majority of people think it's either fishing nets or uh, sewage. We, we, we had a chat with, uh, I can't remember his name, but he was uh, an engineer, but also, yes. uh, but he was also a surfer. Yes. And it wasn't until he was listening to one of these episodes, and he was out surfing, and he's a guy that designs mm. our stormwater systems. He didn't put one and two together. And, he, you know, here's an engineer designing stormwater systems but still didn't make the link. Just goes to show for someone who designs it and for the average Joe or Joe S out there, you know, how are they supposed to know? Yeah. And I, and I guess, I guess with that science. So if I just refer to this study that the article refers to, it's a study published in the Journal of Nature uh, Sustainability. It's a, uh, f- a very detailed study by, uh, 
Carmen Morales Casals and, and a couple other uh, individuals. And it's called an inshore offshore sorting system revealed from global classification of ocean litter. And long story short, they uh, looked at more than 12 million litter items retrieved from five major environments globally and basically categorized them. And worked out, okay, what are the big items? What, what are the most common items we see? Uh, and, and it's worth noting in this article, this is the one probably misgiving of this article, that they don't sort of include cigarette butts in this analysis because they were like, cigarette butts come in all different shapes and sizes. So we're, we're kind of going to leave them out. But we know fundamentally that cigarette butts, uh, at least in Australia, are the most commonly littered items. So there certainly would be a very large proportion of the ocean uh, plastic load. But they were saying uh, that, so the top four uh, littered items, I'm just going to read them out here. These are the top four items that they found in the ocean environments. Okay, number one was plastic bags. Single-use plastic bags. Single-use plastic bags. Number two was bottles, i.e. single-use plastic bottles. Number three was food containers and cutlery. And number four was plastic wrappers. So when you when you hear those top four items, you don't think, oh, it's coming from commercial fishing. You think it's coming from land, it's coming from people, and it's coming from a people that are, are in this sort of throwaway, use it once and chuck it away mentality. But then you think, how does it get there? Not magic. It's not it's not wind. It's essentially when it rains, water falls on the ground and washes our streets clean. Through that washing of the, uh, I guess, urban environment, that pollutant load goes into our drains, into our creeks, into our rivers, into our bays and into our oceans. And these items we're talking about in the study, it's that comprises of 44% of all the trash that was found in the ocean. Mm. 44% is, mm. is coming from land. It's coming from people. So let's dive into that. When, when you're walking down the street next time and you're in a busy city, and, and I know at the moment there's probably not much walking going on in Sydney, um, but you're in Queensland, <laughs> I think you're allowed out. Yeah, we're allowed out, yep. You've got to look on this, especially motorways. I love going down motorways because it really shows you the amount of pollution mm. because you've got to look and to see on the side of motorways, you see all that trash and all of a sudden it rains and all that trash goes. But you're right. These studies are substantiating exactly what we've been talking about and seeing for as long as we've known each other, basically. So, and we, we know that when we look down our pits and our drains and our gross pollutant traps, it's the same items that they're seeing as the most commonly found items in the ocean environment. The com- most common items that we see in our stormwater infrastructure it's the same thing. It's the plastic bag, single-use water bottles, wrappers, etc. And generally, we see a whole bunch of gunk and you know really mucky sediment. And we fundamentally know that that material also contains a whole bunch of microplastics. Yeah. Uh, and and it should be no surprise that yeah that the the amount of microplastics being found in our oceans has been un- underestimated previously. The the study I referred to before, they're saying, look, the more we sort of look into the ocean environment, we're just finding more and more plastic. And, and, and you look at that and go, oh, that's depressing. But for me, it's an opportunity to go, let's solve this problem. We know 80% of ocean plastic is coming from our land. And I should point out, actually, that same study that I referred to before, we, we've used that 80% number quite flippantly for, for several years. And it hasn't actually been based on a huge amount of science. But long story short, these guys have actually done that science and they've gone, you know what, it's actually pretty much bang on. It's a, probably about 79% of ocean plastic is coming from land-based sources. So whether you think in 80, whether you think in 79, you know, it's more or less the lion's share of the ocean plastic load is coming from our land. 
So that means we are responsible. But also what they're seeing, and this is where, where I find I'll probably geek out more on the science, is that the patterns of distribution. Long story short, they're seeing a lot more plastic in our urban environments. So where you see people, you see plastic. Where you've got uh, uh, coastal communities, high-density urban environments, you generally see a whole bunch of plastic on the shorelines, in the creeks, in the rivers. The same study, if you go sort of really deep offshore, you do see a higher proportion of highly buoyant fishing equipment and some nets, if, if it, and also the, 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 the buoyant material that is coming from our land. So there is a bit of a difference between the type of plastics you see, whether it's onshore, in your creeks, or deep offshore. But fundamentally, there's still the lion's share of that plastic load is coming from land. And that's a scary thing, Brad. I mm. mean, the amount of emphasis on surface litter uh, compared to, you know, what's lying on, on the bottom of our ocean, the amount of media attention on that uh, just blows my mind. If we could somehow get a graphic, and maybe if anyone's listening, let's get a graphic out there to show how much pollution is actually lying on the bottom of our ocean. I think Timmy Silverwood... Uh, mm. on, on one of the shows that we had or one of the chats we had came out and said there's actually underwater avalanches of plastic occurring mm. all the time all over the, 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 the seabed floor. And that's, to me, a fundamental reason that we need to get out there and talk about this more. What we see on the surface and what we see in and around the shores and shorelines it's, again, just a drop in the ocean. Yeah. I mean, microplastics don't sit at the top of the ocean. Correct me if I'm wrong, Brad. They're not neutrally buoyant. No. Like you mentioned the infographics, and one that was put out, you might recall, that was done by Unomia, and yep, I'll include yep. a link to this in yep. the show notes, is that they think, and this still blows my mind, they think roughly 94% of the plastic load in our oceans is actually on the seafloor. So 94% of the plastic in our oceans is at the seafloor. And you might think, great, it'll stay there forever. I, I really don't think that's the case. And you might remember from the chat we had with uh, Dr. Janice Brani from the University of Utah, she was talking about how oceans burp plastic out of the deeper depths and, and into the atmosphere and then they get transported via wind action, et cetera, thousands of kilometres. I, I think it would be foolish to assume that if it goes into the ocean and sinks to the bottom, it's staying there. It's almost certainly a, a, a significant portion of it is still coming to the surface, but also you've got to realise, and then obviously being blown elsewhere, but you've got to realise that a lot of our, uh, I guess, marine uh, critter, marine, marine critters, our turtles, our dolphins, our sea lions, etc., they certainly spend a lot of their time in their lives near shore, in coastal waters, in shallow waters. What we know is that, that there's very large amounts of, of plastic in those environments, but again, they're, they're particularly around um, uh, highly populated areas. And there was another study that this article refers to, and I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll quote it now. It's a, it's a study around, it's called Floating Macro Litter Ligged from Europe into the Ocean. This is a, a study by Daniel Gonzalez-Fernandez and a couple others, and this is published in the same journal, Nature of Sustainability, uh, just uh, a month ago. And that talked, that actually did a really detailed analysis of where plastic is coming from in Europe. And there's, for my mind, there's been this sort of idea of that, oh yeah, all the plastic is coming from the, the poor areas, people with low socioeconomic sort of ability and, and income, et cetera. What that found was, was really interesting. Number one, they didn't find any plastic coming out of areas where there wasn't people. So if you have a sort of essentially a, a low, a very low population density in these uh, catchments, you basically see no plastic being discharged downstream. So rule number one, 
where you've got people, you see plastic, and where you've got lots of people, you see lots of plastic. But also what they found, it was very consistent sort of results to the other study I referred to. It, it's the single-use items that they see in the uh, in the greatest quantities, you know, the, the, the bottles, the bags, et cetera. But what they showed, and they actually ranked all the uh, European countries, and this for me was really staggering. They actually have a figure in here. They talk about distribution of uh, uh, floating uh, material per country. The top polluter, the floating uh, material sort of, I guess, pr- production rate, the top polluter was actually Turkey. Now, Turkey is a fairly wealthy country, but it's not, it's not like, you know, UK or France. The second most producing was Italy. The third was UK. Fourth was Spain. Then you go Greece, Norway, Ukraine, France, Russia, Sweden, Denmark, Ireland. And then it goes all the way down. You got uh, down towards the bottom. The, uh, the, the least producing was Bots, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Slovenia, Malta, uh, Belgium, Lithuania. And what for me, I took away from that is that it's actually the higher income generating countries are very high pollution producers, plastic pollution producers. So it's not just a case of it's the poor countries, it's the China, it's the Indonesia or whatever. It's these high income countries that are still have a large amount of plastic being produced. And what this study also showed is it's not just the big rivers that are producing the, the plastic, the, the, the large amounts of plastic loads. If anything, it's actually the smaller basin environments, the smaller catchments, you know, the creeks and, and smaller rivers that are contributing significant uh, amounts of plastic. And I guess potentially one reason for that is that there's, a, I guess, an easier connection between the land environment and the ocean environment. So if you've got a small, uh, I guess, a catchment area, it's far easier for basically stormwater and or essentially rain to fall on the ground and then wash the streets clean and straight into the ocean. Whereas with for some of these larger river systems, you often have a whole bunch of impoundments or dams or et cetera, which will essentially act like breaks. They'll actually essentially stop a large proportion of the litter being transported. So for me, that was another really interesting little finding out of this study. Well, uh, quick, quick, quick question. You've been, to, yeah. you've been to Turkey? I have. I spent a month in Turkey. It's one of my favorite destinations, actually. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I didn't quite make it to Turkey. I, I felt quite ill. I was on a boat cruise and, and couldn't go. Couldn't, self-inflicted? Couldn't, self-inflicted at the time. Self-inflicted. But, no sympathy. But, but I guess where I'm going is what's the stormwater infrastructure like in Turkey? I can't imagine it being that good. It was built a long, long time ago. Yeah, you're right. You Back know. in the day when it was called Constantinople, I think. But I think the other thing about Turkey is that um, the, the largest population density is Istanbul, and Istanbul has a has a fairly uh, quick connection to the um, nearby ocean. So again, it's these areas that are highly populated near near the ocean that essentially are able to discharge. Uh, plastic pollution very easily into the marine environment. Well, and, and we've always said that. I mean, uh, stormwater was designed, originally stormwater infrastructure was designed to stop our cities flooding. So, mm. so it's a fantastic at conveying water off our cities as quickly as possible and out mm. to our creeks, rivers and oceans to avoid mm. uh, yeah. the cities flooding. But when infrastructure does that, it obviously, you know, mobilizes all the pollution. So, you know, just on that, I mean, you've been to Turkey. Did it look dirty? I mean, you must have walked around and run around Turkey. I did. I, 
I had a great time in Turkey. I have some very fond memories. There's a lot of people trying to polish your shoes. <laughs> my bro- I actually traveled around with my brother, Matthew, who will remember. There's a lot of people trying to polish our shoes. Um, like we, we weren't even wearing leather shoes at the time and people still want to polish your shoes. <laughs> about okay, a, a gazillion. <laughs> to, back to getting your shoes polished. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's a joke. Or well, it's a dirty, it didn't strike me as a particularly dirty area, wow. if I'm honest. Like yep. I actually thought it naturally is beautiful. Like if you get, if you get a chance to go to Istanbul. It's, it's got to be one of the greatest cities of all time. Uh, it's amazing. Beautiful mosques, this beautiful sea right next door to these um, uh, areas, amazing bazaars. Did I think it was dirty? No. Okay, no. okay. Nothing so like Bali. Think, yeah, Nothing yeah, like no, no, and we've been there and, and we know that. Yeah. So then we talk about rich countries. Yeah. So is it because they have Uber Eats there and we're just – well, <laughs> no, uh, no, I think, I think – I think you, I think actually that's a big factor. Like I know I don't, I don't mean to be sort of flippant and, and laugh about it, but I think it is. Like so, wh- again, getting back to that science, what are the most common items we see? It's these single-use items, plastic bags, single-use bottles, uh, single-use containers and cutlery yeah. and wrappers. Well, All of those things come from, you know, the Uber Eats lifestyle that we, a, a very large proportion of the population uh, have in terms of having, you know, takeaway and fast food and, and I guess single use items that they basically just use once and throw away. And that, that's clearly a big factor. And, and for me, that's also a great opportunity. Um, and I, now I'm sure you're aware, uh, Jeremy, like there's actually been a significant drive in Australia in particular around banning single use yeah. items, particularly in New South Wales. So there is a, Various states and territories across Australia have varying sort of activities and issues in this area. And look, long story short, across Australia, um, lightweight plastic bags are actually banned in everywhere except New South Wales, but New South Wales is planning to do that by 2022. And actually, as a side note, there's a great infographic uh, that's put out by the Marine Conservation Society, which I'll include, which basically shows what states and territories are doing around uh, banning, uh, progressively banning single-use plastic items. So straws, drink stirrers, cutlery, uh, polystyrene food and drink containers, et cetera, they're all basically being progressively banned in everywhere across Australia except Northern Territory and Tasmania. And I think that's a real positive that sees so many states and, and territories are doing this. Um, but look, I, I really think there, there needs to be more sort of, I guess, uh, attention and a, a far greater ban for more plastics, uh, essentially. But yeah, certainly but, but, that's but, but, a, a great start. Okay, but then what are we going to do? We're, we're going to replace it with biodegradable yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. You know, look, oh, for, for instance, bio, biodegradable <laughs> um, food container is fantastic. But if you get a hot curry in there, it's going to leak all the way through. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, look, I, I, look, I, I, I agree. I, I, I agree. had a curry last night and I got home and I'm like, you know, I've got five or six, you know, plastic containers. Um, yeah. You know, we try and reuse them for, you know, as much as we can here. But yeah. it yeah. just made me think, well, hold on. Why aren't governments being more forceful? If, if we've just in that study yeah. identified we've got plastic bags, cutlery, um, bottles, if we ban them, then they won't end up in our, uh, our river system. Yeah. It's going to make yeah. a huge impact on that. However, how long is that going to take? How long is it going to take yeah. for Turkey to ban these items. And this yeah. is called behavioral change. You know, when mm. you, you know, and it's also during COVID. I mean, the, the single answer is to go and have your Indian in the restaurant, but you can't because you're not allowed out. So it, it's really trying to change, obviously, policy, government policy, but individual behavior. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, it's a really tricky one because like people use these things because they are simple and convenient, and they actually do provide a valuable service. You know, if you don't, you, like you said, yeah, if you need to do a takeaway curry, like what else do you put it in? Do you do you take your own container there? But do, are, are the restaurants going to be amenable to actually What's allow it? that yeah. to use? And like you've seen a lot of places that won't even let you do, let you use a uh, multi-use coffee cup, for yeah. example. Um, it, look, it's it's a really tricky one, but I, I think getting back to the, the point that you made before around it, it, what we're doing now is probably making us. Uh, almost nothing difference, a 7% decrease in plastic loads. Clearly, we need to do more. But I guess what, for my mind, the the science is showing that a a big focus area needs to be, if we're serious about uh, stopping plastic in our ocean, we need to very much focus on reducing and ultimately eliminating those single-use plastic items that we are seeing in in the most uh, abundant quantities, specifically the plastic bags, the single-use containers uh, and bottles and cutlery and wrappers. How we do that, I'm not sure, actually, to be honest. Yeah, it'd be hard. Well, segue. Love it. Look, <laughs> Coca-Cola recently, they've been coming out and um, uh, in, oh. in support of, of uh, a lot of uh, green or, or blue initiatives. What do you think about that, Bradley? Oh, I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about this today because I reckon there's a podcast series in this. And, look, we talked about this recently with uh, Lottie DL uh, around Coca-Cola's involvement and just for people who aren't aware, Coca-Cola have actually recently pledged support to uh, Boy and Slat's Ocean Cleanup uh, Initiative and also Pete Galinsky's uh, Seabin Initiative, both initiatives about cleaning up plastic that's already in our marine environment. From the surface. From the surface, yeah. And as we've just mentioned before, most of the plastic is not at the surface, number one, but as we've talked about time and time again on this show, in terms of the waste management hierarchy, cleanup is the least effective and the most expensive. Sorry, if Coca-Cola really wants to get bang for their buck and not just put a token amount of money towards a, a solution that really isn't particularly effective, they need to put their hand in their pocket and actually do something around avoiding single-use plastics in the first time and essentially reducing our consumption of single-use, uh, obviously clearly single-use bottles with Coca-Cola and all their other products in there. I think anything less is just... Greenwashing, if I'm perfectly honest. I'm thankful for the fact that we've got a lofty disclaimer on this show, which hopefully prevents us from being sued by Coca-Cola. But seriously, I think there comes when you are in a position where you are, and I, I think I'm right in saying Coca-Cola is the leading plastic polluter on the planet. When you're in that position, you have a, a responsibility to drive significant change. You can't just put a token amount of cash towards a fairly ineffective solution. So are you telling me that Mr. Coca-Cola or Mrs. Coca-Cola is responsible if, if someone in Wanaka littering? I think they're in part responsible, yeah, 100%. Okay. Are, are they fully responsible? No. no are they in no. part responsible? Yes. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, okay, great. So then let's go to Goodyear. Let's go to Ferrelli. Let's go to the tyre manufacturers totally. that are producing tyres that we now know through through science is the biggest contributor to microplastics, and nobody's talking about that. But this is, this is the thing. I take my hat off to Coca-Cola because it's their first step in admitting it. Yeah, look, and that's why we that's why we love having you on the show, Jeremy, because we have the uh, your your opinions, and they generally conflict with mine, which is great. But I agree. Whilst I'm being critical of Coca-Cola, and I can do that all day, at least they've got a seat at the table. They're recognising they're part of the problem. They are looking at the the solution at the wrong end of the solution scale. Well, that's just fundamentally. Go to cans again. Can, you can aluminium yep. cans. Yep. 100 percent recyclable. 
Yep. Bring them back. Easy, easy. Similarly, why can't we use uh, glass bottles? There was a recent article, uh, I think it was actually provided by one of our longtime listeners, uh, Mike Fitzpatrick. So shout out to Mike. He he sent me an article around Coca-Cola just one day stopped providing um, their products in glass bottles on Fiji. And all of a sudden, Fiji have got this plastic pollution problem that they haven't previously had to deal with. So Now, I don't know about you guys, well, Brad, Mm. but our listeners, Coca-Cola tastes way better in a bottle. (laughs) <laughs> the, yeah. the black aspirin beautiful in a, uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful in a glass bottle so you know no, but, but I generally and, and Pete Kalinske from, from Seabin hat, hats off to him he, he came out and teamed up with, with, with Coca-Cola oh, hats off to him it's bringing them to the table they're starting to sure. admit responsibility and the more that they start to admit responsibility the more pressure we can put on Oh, yeah, I'm just warming up. But look, I, I agree. At least they've got to seat at the table. At least they're being their part of the problem. They, they clearly need to do more. And, and it's not just Coca-Cola. We're talking about Coca-Cola, but like you educated, the number one source of microplastic in our oceans is car tyres. What a good year. And others, Dunlop, et cetera. What are those tyre companies doing around being part of this solution? Like, long story short, I, from my perspective, nothing. Similar for the tobacco industry. What are they doing around cigarette butts and minimising the <laughs> minimising the amount of cigarette butts being littered in our environment? For the listeners at home, you can't see Jeremy flexing his muscles. It's it's <laughs> again, you aren't missing anything. I feel embarrassed looking at the screen. No, 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 no. I, I, I can. I, it was a huge conflict for me because I yes. obviously hate litter. I hate plastic going into our environment. And, you know, I was a pretty hardcore smoker. I mean, I, mm. I wasn't doing that, but I was sort of on the bandwagon. So no, I'm pleased to say since December the 12th last year, a cigarette has not gone past my lips. Thank you, Brad. That's very impressive, Jeremy. I'm, I, I'm very proud of you. But look, we've talked a little bit, we've gone on a segue and we always love segues on the show. We talked about uh, Coca-Cola, et cetera. But fundamentally, the, the science is actually essentially backing up what we've been talking about for a long time. The vast majority of plastic entering oceans is from land-based sources and the key plastic items that we're seeing in our marine environment are the single-use plastic items. I think it's a real positive that sunny states and territories in Australia are actually progressively banning these things, but clearly more needs to be done. Okay. Now, just on that, clearly more needs to be done. So we're spending a lot of money, we're spending a lot of effort and focus on cleanup, and we're trying to increase awareness around single-use plastics, etc. However, the science shows that that's going to make a bugger all difference to the amount of pollution that's going into our oceans on a long-term scale. So what are we doing in the meantime and bringing back to stormwater management? Surely, the, 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 while, whilst we go through all this change of, of, of getting Coca-Cola on board, going to cans and getting less plastic in our car tyres, every single day that we're talking about this, more and more is going out through our stormwater drains and no one's really talking about it. They're talking rivers, but how does, does it get into the river? And for my mind, it just concerns me that people aren't drawing up the dots and why is it left to a bunch of, oh, we can't say nuffies, but you look like we a can nuffie. Say nuffies. We can say nuffies. <laughs> you know, why <laughs> can do anything on that show. But do you yeah. understand what, what I'm saying? Is This is the last line of defense. And don't think that we're just going to take plastic out of it. We're going to invent something else that's going to turn out mm. to be harmful. We need to be protecting our, our creeks, rivers, and oceans now and forever, and we're not. This is what staggers me in the whole plastic discussion. And so one of the article, well, one of the journal papers that was actually included in this uh, link, and I, uh, sorry, this article, and I'll, I'll include again this in the, in the show notes, but it was, a, it was a, a, a journal article put out last month in the Nature Sustainability Journal, and, it was, and it's called Global Assessment of Innovative Solutions to Tackle Marine Litter. I read it cover to cover. 
there wasn't any mention of stormwater. I'm like, surely, you know, surely this has to be part of the discussion. Even just mentioning the word stormwater, and Jeremy, you might remember back in the day when I think it might have even been my job interview at Ocean Protect. I brought along, and I'll hold it onto the screen. The viewers at home might be able to see this, but it's called Turning the Tide on Plastic. It's a book by Lucy Siegel, and it says on the cover, there's a big sticker, it says, from the expert on plastic. There's 262 pages of how to solve uh, the plastic problem in our oceans. There wasn't even any mention of the word stormwater. There wasn't any mention of the word runoff, not even mentioning the word. So how on earth could you... I really look at this and go, how dare you call yourself an expert when you're not even talking about the key way this plastic is entering our ocean environment? I remember in the book she talks about, oh, I was on these beaches and she's picking up litter and I'm wondering where it's coming from and it's obviously the rivers. But And I, and you obviously remember Jeremy Boyne Slat with his interceptor solution. His, his solution is about putting his U-Butte heavily funded, as a side note, interceptor in 100 of the world's most plastic polluting rivers and he was like yeah i'm going to put these devices in the rivers and we're going to stop a whole bunch of plastic basically putting the devices in the river they're basically like a berm and they basically pick up water sorry plastic that is floating on the river surface and remove it but what about where is the plastic in these rivers coming from it's clearly coming from land and it's clearly being conveyed there generally by stormwater. But in all the discussions around solutions to this plastic pollution problem no one no one except us, is talking about stormwater. It just staggers me. Well, look, look you're a smart man. You've got a degree. I think you're, a, you're aren't you, an adjunct professor at a university on the Gold Coast? <laughs> I mean, like that. Yeah. you know, like, but, but even for, for me, I'm sitting here going, what is wrong? Why are we not drawing up these dots? What is the barrier? Because it's sitting in front of our face. Mm. So what, what is the barrier? Is it government? Is it government taking responsibility for what's happening? I mean, we see it when we, when we go around and talk to councils and state governments and even federal governments within Australia. They all point at the other person. I mean, if you think about it, if you're in a city, say you're in Western Sydney and you're in Fairfield, for instance, water hits the ground in Fairfield, uh, then it goes out through a very, you know, stormwater network and then goes into oh, George's River. Look, I, I don't know exactly, but then it goes to a river, then it goes out into the harbour, Botany Bay, uh, and then it goes out into the ocean. Well, in Australia, uh, who's responsible for that creek? Yeah. Exactly. It's a local government. Then it goes out to Botany Bay. Dare I say that'll be state government. Then it goes out into the ocean, which I think the Australian government are responsible for 200 kilometres out. And then once once it's out there, who's responsible for it now? So what is the barrier? I mean, uh, are, we missing, are we missing something? Oh, look, that's, that's one of them. That's one of them. So who's responsible for water in our oceans, uh, recognising that it comes from uh, a whole bunch of sources, et cetera? We've talked about this before and we've sort of mentioned this just briefly before. There's a lack of understanding of, of uh, ocean plastic. Like uh, in all the community surveys that we see, we see is it a number, as a really high priority concern for the global population and particularly in Australia, which we, and we obviously clearly love our ocean environment. But even stormwater engineers are not making the connection between plastic in our oceans and and where it's coming from. So, and, and, and then you look at stormwater. Okay. Okay. You think, well, it's, it's, it's a, it's a key source, but it's out of sight, out of mind. So if rain falls on your street, it goes down your gutter, goes into a pit, goes into a pipe and it goes somewhere. Most people don't know where it goes. 
And we know generally most stormwater in our urban environments goes straight into some sort of re- receiving environment, a creek, uh, a river, a bay, an ocean, et cetera, without any treatment at all. And now you might remember we were talking to a very senior politician with a very lengthy CV with environmental expertise and management and advocacy, yep. something like 35 years in the industry, won't mention any names, but they didn't even know where stormwater went. They thought stormwater went to a wastewater treatment plant. Come on, say the name. No, you can't. No. <laughs> <laughs> but we were like, and I remember you and me sort of looked at each other yeah. after the meeting gone, what was that all about? We've clearly got to lift our socks in the absence of anyone else doing it, lift our socks and tell our story better. Um, mate, just segue. Do we, do we have any listeners in Turkey? We, we can find <laughs> No, no, we can We do, we do. Out. Yeah, well, yeah, well, we do. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Whoever's listening to us in Turkey, we want to talk to you. <laughs> we, we, no, we want, we want to understand. Yeah. And to anyone that's out there listening to us, we want to understand your local issues and shine light on them and mm. talk about them. So for anyone that's listening, wants to come on the show, send us an email. Brad, have yeah. you got an email address? Yeah, we do. Yeah, look, I'll just go to the Ocean Protect website, oceanprotect.com.au, and click on contact us. It, it goes straight to us. We we love getting all your messages. And just recently, we had a, we've had some doozies and just links to great ideas for guests and and stories and articles and and stuff like that. So that's always well received. But fundamentally, the protection of our oceans uh, is a global a global issue, and it almost doesn't matter where you are. You generally recognise that ocean plastic is a key issue that needs to be solved, and then you've got to think about how to do that. And so. And that's, I guess, one of the things we're, we're talking about. But you're talking about barriers, I guess. So we talked about, you know, the tragedy of the commons, you know, who owns, who, are, who is actually responsible for protecting our oceans and waterways. It's a real unknown. There's this unknown about stormwater being the key source of plastic pollution. There's an unknown of actually what stormwater is and where does it go, et cetera. But also, from my perspective, and we've talked about this before, most of our urban environments have no treatment devices, but where they are installed, they're generally not being looked after. These are often devices that are, are installed typically underground, and they're generally forgotten about. And we know there's tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of these assets in Australia alone that are just completely forgotten about. They'll fall, they'll be full like a uh, garbage bin, and like any garbage bin, if you put more pollution in, it just spills over the top. And one thing we've been advocating for for a long time is just a federal, state, and local government appropriately funding the appropriate maintenance and management of these devices. This is an easy thing to do. It really annoys me when, and, and you might have seen, Jeremy, the, the, the Australian government has recently put out a national plastics plan. And to be honest, there's a whole, there's a few bunch of words around, and there's some positives, but fundamentally, they're just missing the point. They're, they're missing the point around appropriate land-based control of, of pollution. There's no real mention around stormwater. There's some words around we're going to commit to some funding around cleanup activities, which we know are, are a lot less effective than sort of trying to stop pollution at the source. And it really d- does need a whole bunch of investment to actually appropriately protect our oceans and waterways. And this is, from, for our mind, a, a key thing. And, we, and, you, and you, I'm sure you know, Jeremy, we've t- talked about on the show before, we've been pitching this zero-littered ocean target for Australia. So we've got a, a plan for Australia to essentially stop anything bigger than a cigarette butt going on any Australian waterway by 2040. We think it'll stop about a tonne and a half an hour of plastic going into our Australian waterways. It does require a whole bunch of investment with a big focus on education, training, uh, appropriate recycling single-use container schemes, et cetera, and also appropriate uh, management and installation of new storm treatment assets. 
it's a fairly clear strategy. It does need money. It will create a whole bunch of jobs, but it'll stop a whole bunch of pollution in the process. As we know, our, our esteemed Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has provided words around committing to stopping the flow of plastic into our oceans. But from my perspective, has not done nearly enough to actually uh, achieve that in any way, shape or form. Going back to something you said before, a lot of the money go, and look, I love turtles, I love dolphins, but a lot of campaigns go out around plastic and turtles and lovely mammals that, 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 we, that we love, you know, like save the panda, save the turtle, save the, you know. What, what about the little biota sucking on a bit of microplastic? What about sa- oh. save the biota? This is such a major problem and people want to spend money and do a right thing and do campaigns to go out and do cleanups and do all that. Let's fix a fucking problem. Um, you know, it, it's not hard. The solutions are there. We can put them in. We know that they work. They, we know that they stop marine litter or litter or any type of contaminant getting into our waterways. We just can't be asked putting them in or maintaining them. Mm. You know, and, yeah. and while we wait for behavioural change and policy mm. changes in plastic, from the science, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Mm. I mean, we're already killing our planet in so many different ways. I don't know, as, as you can tell, guys, we're very passionate about this because we're not sitting here making up furfies about something. This, no. this is factual-based science, and we've got the solutions, and people aren't using them. And, they, and where they are using them, they're not, they're not using them effectively, as Brad said. Yeah. Yeah, look, you make a really good point. And it's, it's no secret that people like protecting warm, cuddly things, koalas and whales and dolphins and stuff like that. But uh, equally, uh, as just as important in the ecosystem is the critters, is the microbiota. And one thing that we, as we have focused a lot of our discussions around protecting our oceans, uh, we've used, uh, you know, the metric of plastic and litter. Fundamentally, we know that there's a whole bunch of very, very nasty chemicals and contaminants that are essentially invisible to the naked eye that uh as equally damaging and potentially more damaging. And I, my, my mind goes back to the conversation we had with Katie DeFawn, uh from the uh, Sydney Institute of Marine Science. And she was saying how she's done a whole bunch of assessments of the microbiota communities at stormwater outfalls in Sydney Harbour. And long story short, they're finding basically just these environments are completely void of any life. So they're essentially dead zones in Sydney Harbour, which is the you know, most iconic waterway in the world. And where they are, essentially, uh, these environments are receiving direct discharge of stormwater and all the gunk that goes with it, particularly from our road environments with the microplastics, the heavy metals, the, the hydrocarbons, et cetera. These environments are just void of life. Um, so whilst we use, I guess, we're advocating for better stormwater management to stop the litter loads, we also know that when we do better stormwater management, we also stop a whole bunch of other uh, equally damaging and potentially more damaging chemicals and contaminants as well. Yeah, because that's the thing for our listeners. We've got emerging contaminants. You know, uh, people are making stuff up all the time. Well, I think we've had a show on PFAS or if we mm-hmm. haven't, you know, that's, yeah, one, of yeah. them, you know, yeah. that, that's one of them. You know, when you go out and you see the fireys at airports and they're practicing with that, you know, putting out a fire to save lives, which is obviously very important. They practice every couple of weeks to make sure the systems are up. That white foam is extremely toxic. You know, that's just one, you know, emerging contaminant. We need to protect our oceans now and into the future. And it's not just protecting our ocean ecology, as as you've 
coined the term uh, many times, Jeremy, if we kill our oceans, we kill ourselves. And what we're seeing, there is a growing link between ocean health and human health. And if we just focus on microplastic and I guess heavy metals in, uh, in our marine food chain, if we're consuming that material, it fundamentally, we know it almost certainly has an impact on our health. Now, I'm obviously on the vegan hippie bandwagon, so I don't eat fish anyway. But even if I did eat sort of animal products, I just wouldn't eat fish. I'll be honest with you. I just think the risk of heavy metal contamination and microplastic ingestion is just something I just don't well, want you, in my you would, body. You, would, you wouldn't want to eat a prawn out of Sydney Harbour? No way. Cockroaches of the sea, as far as I'm concerned. No way. And you might remember, I think we've used the, the discussion around Sydney Harbour before. Like Sydney Harbour, you actually physically can't do any commercial fishing at all because it's so contaminated. You can do recreational fishing, but you can't eat more than, I think, one I think, I think you can't eat more than two prawn per month if it's caught west of, of the, the bridge, bridge. Yeah, because yeah. of because yeah. of PCB contamination. Okay, I mean, how many and how many pieces of plastic are, are in half a cup of sediment out of Sydney Harbour? Oh, I can't remember this stat. Do you remember? It was. I don't. I Katie. You were, yeah, Katie did. But it, <laughs> I don't have these stats to hand. But oh, it is that. That's the thing. Like the, this is the get back to the, one of the articles we referred to before. Is that the the more we sort of look closer in our marine sediments and our beaches, the more microplastics we're seeing. And you might remember, Jeremy, when we are on uh, Bondi Beach a couple of years ago. Beach cleanup. Yeah, it was a beach cleanup. And, and you and me, you know, walking down the beach, uh, we weren't in our budgie smugglers that day, but uh, we were walking down the beach going, you know, it's pretty clean. It's, yeah, we're you right. know, almost wasting our time here. There was our cleanup, there was another cleanup just a bit further down. We're like, oh, it's already been done. And then we basically just sorted, you know, sifted through the sand. About a couple of square metres, didn't we? Oh, really and stag- we're, it was just staggering. I, I, I honestly, to this day, I still can't believe how much little little bits of plastic that we could visibly see. And then there's the stuff that we can't see, clearly. And, and, then, and that goes to your point, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, mm. You know, Bondi Beach a couple of years ago was voted the cleanest beach in Australia. Well, you know, <laughs> is it really? And, but, <laughs> but we look at Bondi Beach, we look at it so pristine, it's beautiful, but when you dig down underneath that, you find it's contaminated with plastic. We can't even keep our beaches clean. Uh, what are we doing about our creeks and rivers? Yeah, and yeah. our oceans, you know? Like- and fundamentally, we know that, again, back to that study I referred to before, the assessment of uh, microplastic, sorry, ocean plastic items and what are they finding? They're very, seeing very, very high proportions of these single-use items in these beaches, creeks and rivers. The beaches are getting it from the, the creeks and rivers. So water might flow out of these creeks and rivers, but it often gets sort of, you know, brought back with the tide and wave action back onto our beaches. And what we're also seeing, and this is, comes out of the, the more recent research, is that there's this growing recognition that these plastics are being broken down into microplastics. And, and that's happening by a, a combination of processes, particularly physical action and sunlight degradation, et cetera. So yeah, fascinating information. But there's this perception that plastic on the beach is from littering at the beach. Lion's share of it is clearly coming from a further upstream in the catchment. So if you pick up a piece of plastic on Bondi Beach, chances are it's probably come from Western Sydney somewhere. One analogy that we, we often use and continue to use is if you come home at night, you've had a hard work, hard day at work, um, and, and you experience, oh my God, I walk in my front door, there's water everywhere. You, you, you go up to your bathroom and your bath's overflowing, but your tap's actually broken. You can't turn your tap off. You've got to get a plumber out. What do you do? Do you, do you start mopping up the problem or do you try and turn the tap off? And of course, you turn the tire, you, t- you stop it at the source and then you mop up the problem. 
Now, what's happening in the universe and what's happening right now is we're out there trying to mop up a problem without turning the tap off. Now, sure, turning the tap off means stop plastic production right now. That ain't going to happen. You know, mm. we're going to change the behavioral patterns of, of all the humans out there. It's going to take time. And then the mm. last one is you, you physically you can't just change everything. You can't just take all plastic away. You've got to find replacements for it. Mm. So let's call this 20 years, 30 years. Well, what are we going to do until then? We need to be protecting our ecosystems mm. now and forever because, mm. uh, let's face it, plastic's going to be replaced by something else. And then, oh, yeah, it's safe. You know, just like the COVID jab, it's safe. And then, and, you know, it's going to take time to work out, is it actually safe? So, If you had your magic wand and you were a Prime Minister for the day, Jeremy, what, what would you do? Oh, well, I wouldn't allow Quay Kerber to become a resident of Australia. Um, <laughs> uh, if, if I, what would I do? I'd have to say I'd have to try and bring the, the governments together, local, state mm. and federal. Uh, so we're talking about Australia. I'd ban all single-use items, uh, obviously, all of them. But essentially, I would fund the lifesavers of the universe being stormwater treatment devices, uh, adequately fund them in and around Australia. Because, I mean, what what happens if you have, you know, we, we stop single-use, for instance, but then a truck on the Hume Highway with a bunch of microplastic falls over mm-hmm. on, and goes down the drain and goes out. People can uh, go out and litter on purpose. Or they accidentally litter, so wind litter. So we need to protect our, our, our creeks, rivers, and oceans adequately. So if I was Prime Minister for, for one day, I'd just throw a bunch of cash at that. But that's, that's with a disclaimer. Ocean Protect would obviously benefit from that. What would you do, Brad, apart from, you know, sponsoring hair salons around the country? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think we're on the same page. I, I, I definitely think we need cash. Federal government is really historically really good at actually putting cash towards a whole bunch of initiatives, you know, broad infrastructure projects, dams, uh, pink bat schemes, et cetera, to create jobs and provide an, uh, other benefits. So it does need cash. And I think, I don't think any taxpayer would actually begrudge the federal government in particular for, for spending or investing a whole bunch of money in appropriately protecting our oceans and waterways, recognizing that the, the vast majority of ocean plastic in Australian waters is from Australia. We, we, the, there's an estimates they think it's about a ton and a half every hour of plastic entering, entering Australia waterways from Australia. It's not Indonesia. It's not China. So yeah, look, I, I'd, I'd ran up some cash. I'd certainly uh, get the plastic manufacturers in a room and saying, you know, the cigarette manufacturers, the, the soft drink companies, the tire companies and say, you guys, you guys have got to come to me within six months with a, a clear plan of what you guys are going to do to solve the problem that you are significantly contributing to. If you don't come with a decent plan, uh, six months later, you'd probably be banned. Simple as that. And so I'd say, look, fundamentally, we are progressively banning single-use items, you know, bags, straws, cutlery, containers, et cetera. We are just going to have to get rid of them. Simple as that. Prior to doing that, I'd have a significant education campaign uh, to educate the Australian public about why we're doing this in the first place. We know it's going to be inconvenient. Your curry might not arrive or you might not pick up your curry as hot as, as you might like. You might need to take a, your own container down there. You might need to start bringing your own keep cup to the coffee shop. But this is really important. So in uh, every initiative that we need to do uh, to inve- and invest in will be supported by an appropriate educational campaign. We've clearly got a legacy of poor stormwater management in this country. We've got a whole bunch of assets in the ground that don't get maintained and we've got a whole bunch of urban areas that have no treatment whatsoever. That does need a whole bunch of investment to actually address that. 
I'd get the federal and state government to essentially give, whether it's council or some entity, to actually uh, appropriate resources and money to actually maintain their existing infrastructure and then progressively install new assets, particularly in the higher litter generating areas. Yeah, hotspots. So you don't have to do this on a mass scale across the whole country. We do know that the, the vast majority of their plastic is coming from where you've got people. So high pollutant areas are where you've got a high population density. Simple as that. So Melbourne, Sydney, you know, uh, Brisbane, Gold Coast, you know, where you've got a high density population, you know, that's where your, your pollutant hotspots are. Fundamentally, from a job creation perspective, that investment will create a whole bunch of jobs where people already are. It's a, it's a great win. And, and from my perspective, uh, the, the foundation of all this is a clear goal. We, we definitely want to better protect our oceans and waterways. We want to stop the flow of litter and plastic into our oceans and waterways. And this is how we're going to do it. So jump on board, stay positive, and uh, we'll, we'll actually solve this problem. And to the words of uh, Sir Richard Branson, who a couple of days ago was the first space tourist, um, if we can do this, we can do anything. We're, seen, we're sending people up to space for fun. And we're choking our oceans. Now, I know Mr. Branson is, is all over um, ocean conservation, but for any of the listeners and for future generations, come on. We're, we're, I mean, don't get me wrong. I want to go to space, but I want to stop the plastic in our oceans first. I mean, it's a um, huge amount of money getting spent on that and not a lot of money getting spent on, you know, protecting the, the, the creek in, you know, Toowoomba or whatever. So well, are we going to land this plane? We we certainly do. We've we've talked a lot around this issue. We've probably geeked out on enough science for the uh for this episode. But uh it's been great fun. I, this is a different format to what we've normally done, isn't it, Jeremy? So normally we get a guest and we talk about what they're talking about and from my perspective this is actually yeah. been great fun. Let, let's just wa- let's just watch the ratings drop next week. <laughs> hey, but, but before we go, that book in your hand. That book in my hand, yeah, the Lucy Siegel turning the well, tide send on plastic. Lucy Siegel an email if you already haven't. I will. I know I haven't. Do it. I will. Send her an email. Say, come on our show. And again, to any listeners out there, we want to be talking to the people that are within your community, whether they're good Samaritans or they're bad bastards or polluters. We want to be talking to them. Send any suggestions in to the website or to www.oceanprotect.com.au. Suggestions welcome. We love talking and, and building up our community presence. As a note to that as well, I think we need to celebrate the great work that so many people are already doing. So we get a lot of listeners in particular that are heavily involved in their ocean cleanup groups, whether it be Sea Shepherd Australia, whether it be uh, Tangaroo Blue, whether it be, you know, just community groups like Plastic Free Noosa and Plastic Free Bronte and et cetera. But also fundamentally, I know just speaking to various listeners, is that a lot of people have sort of taken on board what we say and incorporated into their own lives. So I know, for example, my brother, when he goes walking his dog, he takes a, a dog poo bag and he just picks up litter along the way. So I think, I think whilst we sort of get frustrated that not, not enough change is happening, I want to sort of remind the listeners that the little differences that you make in your own lives do make big differences to the whole, the whole issue, the whole solution. I think a previous podcast guest, the one percenters. Yeah, yeah. If you, you know? do 1% more every day yeah, by in a month's time, you've done 30%. Oh, I wish you could do that for your hairdo and your clothes. <laughs> I mean, look, it's just so nice to see you, Brad. I mean, you, you've always Likewise, seen, Jeremy. You've it's really, been a while. You've really upped your, um, your fashion um, sense. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, geez, if, if, if you guys could see what I'm looking at right now. 
Um, <laughs> dream come true. Uh, you, you've got this image on your bedside table at home, haven't you, haven't you Jeremy? You know? Yeah, yeah, Brad, that's exactly <laughs> what I've got. <laughs> right on, mate. Hey, uh, lovely talking, and um, I look forward to uh, our chat next week. And uh, until then, everyone keep safe, keep positive, and we can save the planet one day at a time. Boom, boom. Shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.